Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing very well. Today, we have Chris Priest on the show. Chris is running for Congress in the 6th District. That's the, the Lexington District, which includes 18 other counties. It's in central Kentucky. He talked to us about his experiences so far, uh, getting his campaign off the ground, uh, whether or not he's going to have the fundraising prowess to, to really make an impact in this race, why he's running, you know, what are the experiences that he's had that, that led him to a, a political life, and, and uh, we talked a little bit about what strategy he's going to use to try to win this race. So yeah, uh, back to candidate interviews already, Jasmine. I think that this is our first uh, 2022 candidate interview we've done so far with starting earlier and earlier but yeah i really enjoyed talking to chris um and, and wish him uh, the best of luck seems like a cool guy he had a big captain america shield yeah in his uh zoom background <laughs> yeah yeah he's a, he's a he's a comic book writer uh also so that's pretty neat now uh, he had had that as his a lot of stuff back there that i thought was pretty cool so yeah. anyways to, today on the show uh we got two stories uh covid is a huge story just continues to be a huge story uh, you know i i keep thinking we not need to talk about things other than this but really th- this is it this is the big story that's going on right now the delta variant and the state's response to the pandemic that has been ongoing now for more than a year and a half and, and jasmine's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, our united states senator Rand paul uh, who's had an interesting few weeks uh involving some some stuff about his wife and her stock purchases and then also uh some interesting youtube trouble that he's had so jasmine's going to be talking to us about that so without any further ado i'm going to just dig right into covid so jasmine since the last time that we spoke COVID cases have only continued to rise at an increasing rate. We are now averaging between 2,000 and 3,000 daily cases, and I just saw today that we have continued to increase. We're at you know 3,400 today, and, and there was a day last week that saw more than 4,000 cases. That's the 10th highest since the pandemic began. So we are you know starting to approach the level that we saw in the winter last year. So we are again really in in bad shape in terms of the pandemic. Uh, As of Tuesday, I I didn't check it today, today is Wednesday, all but seven of Kentucky's counties are red. That means they have more than 25 cases per 100,000 people. And we are, again, starting to see some of our rural counties in southeastern Kentucky with with huge numbers relative to their population. Uh, Clay County had 197 uh, cases per 100,000 people. Laurel had 125. Jackson with 106. Bell County with 100. Whitley County with 115. Floyd with 121. McGoffin with 106, Wolf with 102. These are all places kind of in southeastern Kentucky, and all of them have more than 100, 100 cases per 100,000 population. Uh, there are a few other counties, including Graves County in western Kentucky, which is where the Fancy Farm Picnic happened, which has 111 uh, cases as well. So we are starting to see some huge numbers out in rural Kentucky, and our urban areas are also seeing sharp increases. Louisville saw a sharp increase two weeks ago, a 58% increase. They went to 19. We went to 1,900 cases in a week, and then there was a less severe increase last week. So we only had a 16% increase when you compare last week to the week before. And that was uh, to 2,200 cases. And, you know, it's, of course, way too early to, to, to know for sure, but it could potentially mean that we are kind of at the top of this wave, but we, we don't know for sure. Uh, you know, the decreasing, the increases decreasing uh, is, is one of the first signs that the wave is cresting. 
Lexington also saw a similar phenomenon, but their cases just had larger jumps. They had an 86% rise week over week two weeks ago, and then they had a 28% uh, rise last week. So, so again, uh, increasing at a decreasing rate. So that could mean that we are, we're cresting, the wave is cresting. But that those are just early indicators, and they could reverse, and we could continue to jump up and grow even more. So as a state, Kentucky has seen a significant rise in deaths since Delta the Delta wave began. You know, we're up to between seven and nine deaths per day from COVID, you know, but our urban counties, which, which again, have higher vaccination rates, uh, the deaths in those places have not shown as dramatic a rise. Louisville has seen 10 deaths so far in August. Now, there were only 10 deaths in all of July, which means that we are more than likely going to have uh, more deaths in August than July. But but that's a much uh, slighter increase than you would have expected with the the astronomical rise in cases. You know, I th- what would we say a fifty eight percent jump in cases, and if we saw you know fifty eight percent jump in deaths, we'd be you know at you know what, with ten deaths, we'd be at fifteen sixteen deaths, and and I don't think we're going to quite get there for for August, uh, which is good. That's good news. Uh, Lexington only saw three deaths in each of June and July, and they have two deaths in August so far, so it could be that they remain pretty stable. Now, again, deaths are a lagging indicator, and when you're looking at two counties, even two counties with a large population, they may not be indicative of the entire population as a whole, just because the death rate is you know, relatively low, but because there's so many cases, there's a lot of death. Um, so it's really hard to kind of parse that out. But, but you know, those are, again, some indicators that the Delta wave isn't leading to as much death in places with a high vaccination rate. These are all, you know, speculative on one level, but but they're they're numeric indicators that that show at least a little bit of hope in this time, which is so dramatically bad for COVID. Vaccinations continue to rise, but slowly. Neither uh, nearly 7,500 Kentuckians are getting vaccinated each day today. Uh, you know, in recent days in Kentucky, that's up from a low of about 2,500 people getting vaccinated daily in late June. So, pretty significant jump. However, it looks like the increase may be slowing down. We have been kind of peaked at about 7,500 vaccinations per day for about a week. So, so it may be that we're, we're stuck here and we're not going to grow. And honestly, it's still going to take us a really long time to get to full vaccination with, uh, with only that many people getting vaccinated every day. So the big thing about COVID is that school has begun in most of the school districts across Kentucky. And here in Kentucky, we are in person in the midst of the Delta rise. Prior to school starting, Governor Bashir did issue a mask mandate for all schools. He had hedged on doing this before, hoping that individual school districts would do it themselves. However, besides a, a few larger counties, uh, really nobody jumped on doing a mask mandate at the school district level. Uh, really, I kind of think the issue is that the school boards were too afraid to issue their own mandates, leaving the job to the governor to keep our kids a little bit safer. And, and he did that. And, and really, uh, he, he was kind of slammed for it, and we'll get into that. There is this law on the books passed in the 2021 session mandating that school this year be fully in person. However, Lee County, which is close to the southeastern surge discussed earlier, they went virtual for three days this week. Not County, which is in the smack dab in the middle of, of all of this uh, huge rise with places with, with triple-digit triple COVID rates, um, they also reported that they are going to close. I am not totally sure how this comports with the law as it's written, but they that is that is in fact what they are doing. 
so Jasmine, I had kind of wondered if this huge surge here after we thought we had, you know, reached the end of the pandemic would cause the Republican legislature here in Kentucky to reconsider some of the more anti-Bashir and anti-safety measures that they took last year. At least some of the Republicans, though, are actually moving in the other direction. The, the first pre-filed bill of the legislative session is from Lynn Beckler, who's a Republican from Western Kentucky, and he uh, the bill that he wrote would ban school districts from requiring masks for students and teachers. So on Tuesday, legislators held a hearing about masks in, in schools, and Education Commissioner Glass was very supportive of the use of masks, as was the Kentucky Student Voice Team, you know, which is actually made up of students. But there were a series of... Uh, loony folks testify, testifying. I, I think that that's the, the the adjective I'd like to use, including one guy saying, "quote If masks work, why haven't they worked?" unquote. So that's some real wisdom coming from that guy. Uh, and and the committee voted five to two in a party line vote to find the mask mandate deficient. That doesn't actually mean anything. They're not in session. They can't actually change any laws. But but they did do that. Jasmine, did you did you get a chance to watch or hear about any of this uh, this hearing uh, on Tuesday? Yeah, I kept up with it from reporters that were there on Twitter. And I mean, some of the stuff was just crazy. I think one legislator said that masks actually make things worse. Yes. (laughs) Um, A guy talked about like praying for, for people who are dying of COVID, but you know, not but that individual liberty is more important. It was just a lot of uh, wacky stuff. Yeah, and it is a little disappointing. I mean, even some legislators who you think would know better, including you know Senator Ralph Alvarado, who's a doctor, um, you know, kind of bowing at the altar of anti-COVID and anti-Bashir rhetoric because it's it's politically expedient for them to do so. Uh, really disappointing, and it's going to prolong this pandemic. Uh, there's, there's just no doubt about it. You know, thank goodness our governor is standing up um, for, uh, for the people and and doing the best that he can, even in the face of a legislature that that is doing everything it can to make the pandemic worse. Uh, he, he, you know, Governor Bashir has has issued a mask mandate for schools. Uh, and you know he's he's gone even further. He held a briefing a briefing on Tuesday about that Delta surge, and he he said in the in the briefing that he was actively considering a new mask mandate due to increases around hospital capacity. Uh, there have been some really scary stories about hospital capacity here in Kentucky and across the country. Uh, with with limited capacity, people having to cancel you know uh, voluntary procedures or uh, what are they called the optional procedures whatever those things are the non-essential procedures elective Elective. there you go jasmine (laughs) yeah a lot of hospitals having to to slow or stop elective procedures and and yeah andy bashir said you know we may have to go back to a mask mandate um that (laughs) that would be really hard uh that would really cause a significant backlash i think but but you know he's what are you gonna do he kind of has to uh at least think about it at this point just because of how bad it's getting you know, yeah, I think he's in a tough position because of bills that were passed in the session. But I just can't imagine, you know, being okay with like having all of these preventable deaths. Yeah, no, not at all. You know? Not at all. It, you 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 really have to do something about it. But it means a really rough situation for him as a first-term governor trying to get reelected. 
that that you're doing something that's so politically unpopular. But, you know, that's that's what it's going to take, probably. He did say that he was not considering capacity limitations, which was, of course, a big part of the response last year, uh, and said that the combination of vaccinations and masks would be able to make it so that capacity restrictions weren't necessary. You know, restaurants, bars, places that really suffered in 2020, um, that that would be really bad for, for, for business. And I just don't think another uh, COVID relief bill will be coming, especially after the midterm elections. So, so that's just a situation we're in with that as well. So just kind of how the Delta surge has worked in a couple of other places to close this out. The United Kingdom has been experiencing the Delta surge for longer than the United States. They saw cases rise very quickly like we're experiencing right now. But then they took a nosedive. They kind of hit a top and then they they really just went down. They've kind of flattened out and they flattened out at a relatively high level, higher than the level that they experienced before the Delta surge started. Um, which isn't great, but it is kind of where where they're at. Uh, Missouri, Arkansas, and Louisiana also are states that experienced an early Delta surge. If you're looking for for clues, um, you know Missouri and, and Arkansas were, were seeing cases rise when the rest of the country was really seeing them bottom out, and, and they are actually starting to see their cases really level out. So it feels like that they're at the top of the surge. And, and we'll see if they start to see a, a United Kingdom-style nosedive in terms of their number of cases or if they maintain that high level of cases. We'll see. Um, I, I really hope that this this surge in Kentucky doesn't last too much longer. It's really scary and really sad. It is worth noting that everything that we've said about vaccinated people being relatively safe, safe is mostly still holding. Um, the the Biden administration did say that people may need a third shot, and they're you know starting to think through plans about how to start issuing those in September. But the New York Times published a new tool showing the difference in states between vaccinated and unvaccinated hospitalization rates and death rates. And in Kentucky, since March, unvaccinated people were 23 times more likely to die from COVID and 41 times more likely to be hospitalized. That's you know that's just astronomically more likely that's like saying almost all hospitalizations and almost all deaths are due to unvaccinated people you know breakthrough cases do happen uh, but they are less likely to need additional care including hospitalizations and, and including death dr stack in that briefing we mentioned on tuesday also said that 87 percent of the deaths from covid since march were from unvaccinated people so so you know up to 90 percent so Again, you know, that's 13% of people who are vaccinated that did die from COVID. Uh, he did say that most of those were immunocompromised in some way. But, you know, that's really scary if you're an immunocompromised person and, and you're vaccinated. Like, you're not safe. That's that's mm-hmm. the thing about this right now and one of the things that makes it makes it so scary. So that's where we're at with COVID. It's not good. Uh, it's not good. Uh, but, but you know, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. And, and, and hopefully this is uh, over soon cases start to go back down and uh we can we can you know figure out how to deal with the next thing in covid because it just feels like it's never gonna go away how you feeling jasmine regarding covid in your life i'm feeling pretty bad um (laughs) (laughs) i think like seeing hospitals especially like the small city hospitals filling up is really scary um i i think you know, I could live with the fact of like getting COVID as a vaccinated person, you know, maybe it wouldn't be a super serious case, but I think what's especially 
scary about a new variant is that a vaccinated person can still pass it on to someone else. And so I worry about passing it on to immunocompromised people if I were to get it. And so, yeah, I'm definitely not in a great place with COVID anxiety. And I I think also so many things have, have gone back to in person and it seems like they're hesitant to go back to how things were, you know, as far as like letting employees work from home and things like that. And so, you know, I'm still having to do everything in my life in person mm-hmm. right now. And so I could definitely be doing better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really freaking me out is the hospital capacity thing. You know, you've got so many people that have COVID in the hospital that are really kind of filling up the hospitals. And, you know, I was in my garage yesterday and I saw a black widow spider. Uh, and I was like, you know, if that spider bites me, I'm going to have to go to the hospital. And if I have to go to the hospital, you know, I'm going to have to be dealing with all of these COVID people. You know, if I fall and, you know, hurt, break my wrist or, you know, if something else happens to me, you know, yeah. we all have the same hospital system. We all have the same healthcare system. And, and if, you know, COVID is overrunning everything, it makes everything else worse. So that that's one of the things that's really freaking me out. I, you know, it's it's Louise's first birthday this week, and, and we are going to have a party, uh, but, you know, we've made some significant changes to it. We're going to have it outside. We're going to have it, uh, you know, everybody that we invited is vaccinated, uh, and, you know, we we are doing our best to stay safe in, in these times, but it is kind of tough. Like, you know, we, we kind of thought that we were through with this, and here we are back to it and, and trying to figuring out the best way to balance um, what we need to do with, you know, trying to have life in the midst of, of all of this. And it, it's just a real struggle uh, as we start to come to the realization that this is probably just going to be with us and, and something that we're going to have to carry and adjust to um, for quite a long time. <sighs> all right, Jasmine, talk to us about Rand Paul's issues. All right. Um, versus the stock story, I feel like that's definitely the biggest one. So last Wednesday, Senator Rand Paul revealed um, that his wife, Kelly Paul, purchased stock in Gilead Sciences, which is a company that makes a drug that's been used to treat COVID-19. She purchased the stock in February of 2020. And so February of last year, that is before COVID had been classified as a pandemic by the World Health Organization. You know, why Why we're talking about this, the Stock Act um, requires stock purchases to be disclosed within 45 days of the transaction to prevent insider trading for Congress people, basically. Um, but Rand Paul didn't report the purchase and the trade until last week, which is, of course, 16 months past the deadline. Um, Paul's spokesperson said that he had just realized recently that the form the disclosure form was never transmitted that they they had the form realized it was mistakenly not transmitted and he realized it when he was preparing a disc- another disclosure um kelly paul said that she bought the stock based on information that was in the news and public at the time and february in february you know we didn't have a ton of cases yet. You know, I don't think we had a case in Kentucky that was confirmed at that time or anything like that, but we, we were starting to know more about COVID. So I don't know. Yeah. It was definitely raging in Asia at that time. And we were starting to see like, 
I mean, it was a pandemic there. And, you know, we were looking over there and thinking, wow, that would be really bad if it made its way over here. Hopefully it doesn't. Uh, and it, it did. It did do that. Yeah. And this was also the Paul's fam the Paul family's first individual stock purchase in over a decade. Um, you know, but of course the Paul family wasn't the first to do something like this. Georgia senators Kelly Leffler and David Perdue and others um, bought stock in similar companies such as Pfizer and Citrix, which is like a remote operation software back in January and February of 2020. Um, so there was an ethics probe against um, the ones I named and three other senators and the investigations, you know, were dropped. Um, but of course, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue did lose their jobs as senators when they were defeated by Democrats, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. But, you know, that was in Georgia. I think Kentucky is different than Georgia. The Georgia race was a runoff election that really the whole country was paying attention to and like pouring money into sending staffers down there. Um, so I don't know if, if something like this is going to affect um, Rand Paul's Senate race the way it did in Georgia. But what do you think, Robert? It's an interesting question, Jasmine. I, I totally hear what you're saying uh, in that, like it probably, it, you know, everything was a huge story in that those Georgia races. But I do think, you know, Senate races are, you know, there's there's like momentum to a narrative, right? I think that's like one way to put it. Like if something bad happens to a candidate, it's likely that in, if another bad thing happens, that that starts a ball rolling. And, and obviously this is, this is, you know, a bad thing that Rand Paul has done and, and Charles Booker has done his best to, to bring attention to it. And I, you know, as he should, as a candidate and as he should, as somebody who wants to hold senators accountable, both. And, and so I do think, you know, it might not matter, but it could also start a ball rolling, which, uh, you know, could, could lead to bad news for Rand Paul. It's just hard to say right now how big of an impact it might have. Yeah. And you know, the, the day this, disclosure was reported charles booker was on it he he got a video out there pretty immediately calling for Rand paul's resignation um also during this week Ch charles booker had a, 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 a child yeah. so really busy week justice for him. yeah <laughs> baby justice was born um so congratulations to him but you know he's called for Rand paul to resign i don't think that's gonna happen and I also kind of think that the odds of him getting in trouble for something like this do seem small just based on precedent, I guess. The, the Senate Select Committee on Ethics hasn't issued a disciplinary sanction in over a decade. Um, there also hasn't been anything announced about whether Paul will be investigated at this point. You know, the one thing I'm not sure about, though, is if the late disclosure makes this case different than Kelly Leffler and David Perdue's situations. I think it likely does make it different. Yeah. I don't know how much different, though. It can, right. It's probably just one of those things where you say, I'm sorry, and they say, well, you, I, you've done a bad thing. We're censoring you, or we're going to fine you $5,000 or something, some small drop in the bucket, uh, and, and they just kind of move on from it. Uh, but, yeah. uh, but, I mean, it is an opportunity – uh, to, you know, again, cement a narrative if they do take action. So it is worth watching to see what happens with this. 
So that is the stock disclosure story. The other one um, is really just like a quick note. He Rand Paul was also suspended from YouTube for a week, the same, pretty much the same time that the stock disclosure thing came out. Um, he was suspended from YouTube for posting misinformation about the effectiveness of masks. And he said that he wears his suspension like a badge of honor. Real shameful stuff there, just yeah. because, like, yeah, I mean, that. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, Democrats honestly have had a couple of times where Rand Paul has done some surprisingly good things, you know, and, and a lot of people are like, oh, man, it's kind of surprising a broken clock is right twice a day or whatever. And, and there are a couple issues that he does. You know, he's kind of a non-interventionist. He doesn't believe in corporate welfare and those kind of things. But, I mean, the bad things about Rand Paul are just so much worse. I mean, in my opinion, worse than the things about Mitch McConnell. Like, mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell is the... He's a really bad senator, and he's responsible for so much bad stuff in the government. But he's calling for people to get vaccinated. He's wearing a mask. He's yeah. not actively trying... He's not, like, anti-safety like Rand Paul is in the, on this issue. And, and it is just... It's just shameful. It's just so shameful that, you know, we have these two senators who are so bad in, in like, both the crazy and evil directions. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's uh, that's where we're at. So, you know, I'm glad that you're happy you got suspended from YouTube, Rand Paul. I'm embarrassed about it. I'm embarrassed yeah. for you. So there you go. Anything else about Rand Paul, Jasmine? Nope, that's really all I got. I guess, you know, the last thing is, you know, just thinking about how these things might affect the election is he at risk of losing? And and I would still say that uh, Rand Paul still has a very good chance of, of winning his election despite these seeds of corruption and his anti-mask and anti-vaccine campaign. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it's just you never know what's going to happen. Uh, you know, the last time a Democrat had got, got close at all was this seat in 2004, uh, when when Jim Bunning, you know, it started off with him just doing some weird stuff. And then all of a sudden, it just kind of started rolling, and, and he did more weird stuff. And he, he, he all of a sudden then was comparing Dan Mangiardo, the ca- the candidate at the time, to like a, Saddam Hussein's sons was a thing that happened in that campaign. By itself, very weird, kind of strange, but in the middle of a narrative of him acting crazy, kind of kind of you know rose to the surface and created a narrative obviously this is a very 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 different time than 2004 the political environment it could not be any more different than it is but you know the same sort of rules might apply and, and i i don't i think you can't say that something like this definitely isn't gonna matter i, I think you're exactly right that it's uh, unlikely to cause him to lose uh, and he certainly should still be favored to win the race um, but this is the type of thing that could, like I mentioned, start the ball rolling. And, and, and you know, the more people that get exposed to Rand Paul's craziness and, and start to realize the type of person that he is, you know, I think the better off Charles Booker is. So so we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Yeah, you, you definitely never know what's going to come up, I guess. Yep. Yep. And Charles Booker and uh, all potential Democratic candidates want to make sure that we know that there's there's lots of people running. All right, Jasmine, let's get to our interview with Chris Priest. Chris Priest is a Democratic candidate for Kentucky's 6th Congressional District. He's a graduate of Moorhead State and has spent time teaching in several districts in Central and Eastern Kentucky. 
Currently, he works as a teacher in Berea and is pursuing a PhD in STEM education at the University of Kentucky. And in addition, Chris has published published several comic books. The current sixth district includes Lexington and 18 surrounding counties, but is subject to change in redistricting early next year. So, Chris Priest, welcome to my Old Kentucky podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're very glad to have you. Thank you for coming on. So, you know, let's ask the hard question first. Uh, Amy McGrath, when she <laughs> ran in this district a couple of years ago, she raised more than $8 million for this race. Josh Hicks, when he ran last time, he raised almost $3 million. You know, Andy Barr, the Republican who holds the seat currently, he's already raised more than a million dollars for the race in 2022. So, I mean, do you expect to be able to keep pace with Andy Barr in the fundraising race? And, and is that important to you uh, if you are the Democratic nominee? Yeah, well, it's uh, that that is a tough question. <laughs> um and, you know, it, it's always challenging to face an incumbent, especially when it comes to raising money. Uh, but look at what Amy McGrath did four years ago. Like you just said, she raised $8 million. Uh, she really gave, uh, gave Bart a challenge there. And, you know, I definitely plan to challenge Barr when it comes to fundraising. But that also, that's also not the most important thing, you know, in, in the race. And the most important thing is votes. So, you know, there's not always an equal uh, equation there between money and votes. You really got to get out there and have the right plan of attack and uh, have the right message for people and get out there and, and connect with people. Uh, and I think that, you know, in the end is going to be the most important thing. However, you know, being able to do that does require a fair amount of money. And I will be raising the money needed to do that. Yeah, uh, that's good to hear. Uh, of course, it's very important to be able to do that, but you seem like you have a good perspective about how important it needs to be. So that's that's good to hear. So you've actually, you know, you've declared your candidacy already. It's really early. This race isn't for you know more than a year. You're six months before the filing deadline, almost. Uh, you know, and and also this district is due to be redrawn before the 2022 legislative session or during the 2022 legislative session. And that might happen and it might not. But that's definitely something that's that's on the list of most state legislatures to do lists. So, you know, why did you declare your candidacy so early? And what do you hope to gain with all this extra time that you have in the race uh, before anybody else declares? Thinking about the redistricting part, you know, I know that the CDC, not sorry, not CDC, everything is pandemic related. Um, <laughs> the the census is giving their numbers later than what they would normally normally do. And given that, you know, with the pandemic and everything, I, I felt like the map is probably going to be the same. It could change. Absolutely, it could. Um, but I feel like that that the likelihood is that whenever it's filed, there'll be a lawsuit and it will be pushed until, you know, the, the redrawing uh, redistricting will be pushed back to the next election. And so uh, now looking at, at why I filed so early, I did it because that's when I made up my mind that I was running. And when I made up my mind, I was uh, committing committing to myself and to the rest of this district that I am running for this seat and I am going to do everything that I can uh, to really get out there, show the people that I'm running, show the people that I, uh, well, care care about them, want to do well with all of this and learn the ropes with running a campaign because 
I'm I'm a political outsider. I've been a teacher. <laughs> uh, you know, I I know how to how to teach chemistry. I know how to take you know help students in in a lot of different ways. Uh, but when it comes to to being a politician, the you know I'm very new to this, and I knew it was going to take a learning curve for me. So starting early was the only option, and you know I declared because. You know, I, I was committing to myself and to the district. Sure. Yeah, that, that's really that's you know, that seems like a good reason. And I think the extra time will probably help out a lot. I don't know anything about chemistry, so maybe we can trade. Uh, there you go. Sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, you know, one of the things I've heard already from lots of people uh, is, you know, asking, you know, is Chris Priest a serious candidate? Uh, and you know, that can mean any number of things. And, and that usually my personal follow up to that is what do you mean? So I'm interested in your opinion, uh, what makes a serious candidate and, and are you one? Well, I, I'm very happy that the word is getting out for them to even ask that question. Who's this guy, Chris Priest? And is he serious? Well, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in terms of a serious candidate and just thinking about the definition of it, um, I would say that it's anybody who cares about the people uh, in in the district and who is willing to do what it takes to win. Um, you know, this summer I, I had two goals. One was to write a great graphic novel centered around uh, cancer in Appalachia, uh, which I which I've done. And the other was to get this campaign up and running, uh, which I've also done. Um, and you know, I, I'm going around and. To, to all the counties in the district and, and meeting different folks and talking to them and, and, you know, trying to understand their problems that, that they have and the things that they want to see uh, grow uh, where they are. And, you know, it, it's been a great experience to do that because, you know, I, I live, I live in Madison County um, and, you know, we have living here, we have our, our own uh, sets of issues that we would like to see addressed, but you know, people in Powell County or Wolf County or or Lexington, they have they have different things that they're concerned about, and it's really important to go around to each of the counties and and listen to listen to what they have to say and, and really get familiar with uh, with with all the counties um, here and and understand what they need. And so yes, I, I'm I'm serious because you know I I, I care about the people here. I'm, I'm listening to them. And uh, um, and I'm going to do what it takes to win. So you talked about your teaching career a little bit already, um, but Kentucky has seen a lot of educators run for office over the past few cycles, and your name can now be added to that list. Is education policy, you know, an issue that you'd want to focus on as a member of Congress? And are there any other issues that motivate you? Yes, absolutely. So certainly, being a teacher. Um, I see a lot of problems from an educator's perspective that needs to be changed. Uh, and, you know, one of them, one policy or policy topic that I would, I would see that needs to be changed is education. Uh, by golly, there needs to be a lot more funding for education um, in, in a lot of different ways. And also, you know, uh, public education K through 12, as well as college, you know, people are really, uh, strapped for, uh, from college debt. Um, you know, I have some of my own, so I, I, I live part of that. 
in, in another way than just K through, you know, seeing the issues centered around K through 12. Um, now, just thinking beyond education, uh, healthcare is huge. We have to be able to address healthcare. Um, you know, I, my, my own father, uh, who is diabetic, um, he had a medication a couple months ago go from $40 a month to $400 a month. Now, he's, you know, he's on a fixed income, uh, and now he can't afford that medicine. Um, this is, you know, it's absurd that that, that medicine, you know, he can't get the, and, and there's not necessarily another, another medicine that can fill that role for him. Um, so it, it, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, even this summer, uh, I went in for a routine procedure, a colonoscopy, just because I wanted to, to, you know, make, it was prevent or precautionary, you know, I wanted to make sure everything was okay. Um, and, uh, it cost me $1,700 <laughs> and I have decent health and health insurance for, uh, uh, you know, and it, it costs that much with quote unquote, decent health insurance. That's absurd. Um, and so I, I know that there are people out there not going to the doctor at all because they can't afford the copay or they're too worried about, uh, what the bill's going to be afterwards. Uh, and we certainly know that we've got people uh, that are really strapped that have gone to the doctor when they need it and are, you know, uh, are, are strapped with that bill. Um, and one of the one of the things that is that is really maddening to me is that, yeah, we have we have laws to protect people from uh, uh, from medical old medical bills uh not hurting their credit because a lot of our livelihoods are built on whether we have good credit or not uh but if if a hospital decides that they've given up on it given up on that bill and they give it over to collections well then it can hurt your credit once it goes to the collect collections so it you know that that hasn't actually been completely stopped <laughs> uh that still could hurt people it just takes a little bit longer um, and then another thing, uh, that, that is really important is jobs. I, I'm, I, you know, I was born and raised in Martin County, uh, in Martin County, the, the biggest employer is the, the board of education. And there's, you know, not a whole other, whole lot of other jobs there, uh, you know, outside of that, um, because all the cold jobs have left. Well, there's certainly counties in this district that are in the same boat as Martin County. And we've got to be able to fix that. Uh, we've got to to have something uh, for for these for these kids and the and the people that are there now uh, to work for. Now, largely, politicians will come in and say, "Oh, we're going to come in and bring in industry. We're going to you know like Toyota or something." Which Toyota has been brought in here, and that's and that's great. Uh, but you know the the people in the far end of the district would have to drive you know an hour and a half to get there. Or, or more. Um, so that, that makes it pretty hard, hard for them. So, you know, we, we need another approach. You know, there's, there's, you can't bring in Toyotas for, for every County. Um, you know, that, that's just not feasible. So I think we need more of a, a bottom up approach and providing money and resources for people to try to start their own businesses and come up with their solutions that they want in their counties. Um, 
I think that would really supply some some hope and uh, um, and and also jobs the the needed jobs that are there uh, for them to shape uh, where where they live. Yeah. So you know, you mentioned some personal experiences, like your family's experiences with the healthcare system and your experience with you know living in Eastern Kentucky. Um, tell us just a little bit how you hope those experiences would help shape the kind of Congress person that you would be. Um, well, certainly teaching is, is huge. Teaching, you know, is, is paramount to the person that I am right now. And I, I will, I will say that when, whenever I'm teaching a class and I've got a room full of students and, uh, Whenever I, my, my first year teaching, uh, my mentor told me, told me this, students do not care how much I know. They, they only know how much I care. And so I, I see this very much in a similar light. The people of this district are not going to care how much I know. They're only going to know how much I care. And I need to show them that I care about them. I'm, I want to listen to their concerns, uh, and I want to do everything I can to help them. And part of that, uh, I'm, I'm really wanting to, to put a good foot forward and, and be an example. And uh, on my website, I have a community resources link, and I'm going to get my volunteers for the campaign to really uh, dig in and find as many community resources uh, in the district and put them there. That way, whenever I'm going out and talking to people and they say that they have a need, I can try to link them up uh, and and help them. You know, I, I don't want to just be going out and asking for a vote. I want to ask, how can I help you? Would you mind voting for me? Um, and I, I think that is that is huge. Yeah, it certainly does help. I think whenever uh, you know you're asking somebody to return a favor as opposed to do you a favor when you ask for a vote. Uh, if if you've you've shown that you care before uh, and been able to to help in some kind of way. Um, then people know, you know, that you care and are, are willing to go vote for you. I, I, I see that completely. Uh, all right. So, so Andy Barr has become quite entrenched in, in this district. Uh, you know, he's now been elected for five terms in the House. He's faced opposition every single time. It's not like he hasn't faced, uh, you know, uh, an opponent. Um, and, you know, we talked in the beginning. He's had millions of dollars spent attacking him uh, and, and a lot of different Democrats have tried lots of different ways to beat Andy Barr. And, and, you know, they've run the progressive and they've run, you know, the rural moderate and they've done all kinds of stuff in this district to try to win. Uh, and, and everybody's come up short. So, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, you got to have a good strategy. Can you let us in a little bit on what that strategy is that you think uh, would be effective at, at taking down Andy Barr? 42% of Kentucky did not vote in the last election. And uh, when when voters do not go out and, and vote in large numbers, that typically helps uh, the Republican candidate. And I, I think that holds true in Kentucky uh, as well. And, you know, I there's I, I've talked to several, several folks who who did not vote in this last election that were eligible to um, and they feel like that their voice isn't being heard. They feel like, uh, you know, that 
they'll, they'll say things like, uh, all politicians are corrupt or, um, you know, my vote doesn't count, uh, things like that. And I think it is paramount to really go out and connect with as many people as possible and show them uh, that their vote does matter um, and that, you know, and, and that I'm here to represent them. Um, now, to, to do that, that, that takes a lot of, lot of resources to do that. And, you know, part of a, a strategy used in the past that uh, has been to try to, to really rally up the votes in, in Lexington as much as possible. Uh, and and get you know because Lexington holds fifty percent of the voting population in this district. It's huge, um, so they really try to focus on Lexington, and then kind of let the rest fall where it may. Uh, and I, I I do not plan to use that strategy. Uh, I come from a holler. <laughs> I, I was born and raised in a holler, and I'm not going to forget about the people that live up those hollers. I want to get up as many hollers as possible and talk to those people, see what their concerns are and, and help them out. And I think, I, th- I really think that that's going to be the, the difference maker is uh, connecting people in that way and showing them that, that I'm not just somebody who cares about Lexington. I'm somebody who cares about, you know, uh, where they live, their, their small town, their holler uh, and, and help them. Yeah, I, I totally uh, understand where you're coming from in terms of, you know, the, the it is a bigger district than just Lexington, and there are 18 other counties involved in the district. Uh, I do think, you know, it's really important that you got to kind of do both, right? You kind of have to uh, make those, make everybody else outside of Lexington be very heard, and you also have to do really well in Lexington in order to... Uh, in order to win in the sixth. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think everybody outside of Lexington would be really thrilled to hear uh, that they that, that their voice matters to them. But, but I mean, what about Lexington? Um, what do you, you know, you, you obviously just said you're not going to, you know, make it the only focus of your campaign, but, but do you have a, a Lexington strategy for how to appeal to the voters inside of Fayette County? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Within Fayette County, there's uh, there's also other groups in in Fayette County that that aren't really being reached. I I don't think really the the uh, Hispanic population has been reached out to very much, um, and I fully uh, plan on having uh, a link on my website that will convert the page to uh, to Spanish as well as having Spanish uh, flyers to hand out. Um, you know, and, and really organize around Lexington. There's, there's no way to, to win this seat without, uh, without Lexington. I mean, uh, and, and nor would I want to try to do that. Uh, you know, those people are in, in the district and, and matter to me as well. Um, you know, it's just that I'm, uh, wanting to say that I'm, I'm not going to solely focus on them or, or have them as, as, uh, uh, the, yeah, the, the only focus, but, they will be a, uh, a, a focus certainly, uh, for the campaign as, um, as they are important. And, you know, we will, uh, we will get out to those communities and talk to, talk to them and, and see what, um, see what they need. All right. Last but not least, how can people get involved with your campaign? Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, so I have my website, 
which is chrispriest.org. Uh, I also have a Facebook page, uh, which is Chris Priest for U.S. Congress, K- uh, KY6, and Instagram, which is Priest for the People. Um, and so those those are the ways to uh, to check out the campaign. Um, you know, and certainly uh, we talked about fundraising. <laughs> so if uh, any of your listeners would like to donate, that is much appreciated. Uh, and, you know, I always need volunteers to help with different things. And, you know, if you're interested in uh, knocking doors or looking up community resources and wanting to help organize that, uh, you know, there's there's lots of different things that could be done uh, that would be uh, really appreciated. All right, Chris Priest, uh, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you all. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. You can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of your choice. We also have a newsletter that has a, a new slash old home at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And last but not least, we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.